Welcome back to The Dive, an Inside the Daily Press podcast featuring community leaders discussing issues impacting the city. Inside the Daily Press podcasts are produced by the Santa Monica Daily Press, the city's premier news source for two decades. Visit smdp.com for news of the day. Welcome back to Inside the Daily Press. I'm Todd James, and today I'm joined with a very special guest, Albin Gillich. Uh, if you don't know Albin Gillich, you probably haven't been in Santa Monica too long. I like to refer to him as our Kevin Bacon. I think everybody's one or two degrees removed from Albin. Um, I'm going to have him introduce himself because he's done so many things that it's hard to keep up with. I first met Albin seems like close to 20 years ago when um, he helped rescue a neighborhood organization that had kind of fallen by the wayside and he tirelessly, almost single-handedly brought it back to life and dealt with things like the IRS and all sorts of other entities to, to make things happen. So he's the type of person that jumps in and gets things done and he's been very generous with his time to Santa Monica, as you will hear. So with that, Albin, welcome and introduce yourself. Thank you, Todd. It's good to be here. Um, yeah, it has been almost that long that we've known each other. I've lived in Santa Monica probably the better part of 18 years. Um, and when I moved here, I jumped right in to get involved. Uh, started with the Virginia Avenue Park Advisory Board, and then that uh, soon led to NOMA, where you and I met. Um, I guess you know that's in my nature. I grew up in a kind of a quintessential hometown USA type of environment outside of Chicago, called Arlington Heights. And, it, you know, my parents instilled within me and my brothers getting involved, giving back. We're lucky to live here in this country and and it's strong because all of us contribute. So that was kind of the, the ethic we had in our household. And, you know, and as a, as a young child and teenager and, and young adult, that's how I spent a lot of my free time. So then when I moved to Santa Monica, a place I'd always really had my eye on to live and call home, I was just so impressed with how well everything is run, the quality of life here, and and of course then observe some of the the issues that we have. And I you know, quickly started asking around, how do I get involved and try and help with this? And I was pointed into several different directions, and kind of off it went. At the time, um, I was much younger, and I tended to—I seemed to be the youngest person getting involved. So when you're young and enthusiastic <laughs> and energetic, one board or commission morphs into another, and another, and another, and so then you—you know—you find yourself spread too thinly once in a while. But um, but it's all been very rewarding, very interesting. I've learned a ton. I feel like my community involvement has become a second career. And I think it's really helped well round and shape me as a person. So today you are just a few, a few weeks away from uh, leaving travel and tourism. You've been the chair for, is it the last year? Yeah, I've been chair for last year and on the board for eight years. I'm sure they will miss you greatly. Um, We are going to jump into your trip to Poland soon, but um, I just wanted to... uh, ask you if you've um, got any plans after travel and tourism in terms of what you're going to do. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, maybe initially enjoying some more free time, <laughs> but I do have my eye on a few other openings and some of our city's commissions, primarily the Public Safety Oversight Commission, I understand has an opening. So I'm probably going to throw my hat in the ring for that. Great. Well, you've always 
been willing to help out in Santa Monica. And so it should, should come as no surprise that when the things started to go badly uh, halfway around the world and in Ukraine, that uh, that piqued your interest and you ended up traveling to Poland to help out with the refugee crisis. So when I saw that, that you were going there, it did not surprise me mm-hmm. one bit. But tell us how that happened. What, what right. led you to this? So, so before I moved to Santa Monica, I lived to several other places. And um, I also studied Russian in high school. And so I studied all through high school and college. I was a Russian major. And then my first real big boy job out of college was actually in Moscow. So I lived in Moscow from 1995 to 2000, which is pretty much where I spent most of my 20s. So that shapes you as a person too. <laughs> We're still growing and, and changing at, the, at, at that age. Um, and so it's so Russia and Russian all have been a part of my life for most of my life now. And it's a place I enjoy traveling back to. I have friends and adopted family there. It's just, you know, part of me. And so it was, you know, when I can make a trip back, I was always happy to go. So then when this war started, um, you know, it became really tough to watch every night on TV and you sit on your couch you're like, well, you know, this is awful. And I know some of these people, I have friends in Ukraine who are now refugees, you know, thankfully safe. But I mean, just you started to, the, the difficulties become real when you, you've been there or you know these people. And so I started poking around for ways to get involved and, you know, doing a little Googling or, and, and to see where Russian speakers were needed. And I stumbled upon um, the Jewish Federation. We're looking to pull together groups of, of volunteers to send to different locations around Poland, Hungary, and Slovakia to help with the refugees. And it wasn't really clear what I was meant to do when I got there. I knew translation would be part of it. But, it, but then when I arrived, and I'm just kind of learning more about the situation, a lot of it was emotional support. Um, try and provide a little levity and fun and, and activity for them. Um, you know, thankfully those countries are doing a wonderful job hosting everybody, all, everyone from Ukraine I met living in Poland, <clears throat> they're well housed, they're, they're fed, they have everything they need to survive, but they don't have their lives. Right. So all these professionals, you know, from whatever jobs they did, school teachers, doctors, lawyers, and mostly women because the men are required to stay there. Um, you know, they're kind of left there. Okay, well, I have a place to live and I'm safe, but my kids aren't in school. Um, what's going on back at home? You know, is my house still there? How's my husband, brother, father, whoever? And and just that can eat you up and paralyze you as a person. So I got to see some of that firsthand. It was very, very concerning and sad. But like, you know, again, I was there for a reason. And it quickly became evident that one of the things I could do is teach English. So the other European countries have been great in welcoming um, Ukrainians to come live with them, especially the United Kingdom. And so I ended up meeting a few of the women who were on a list to be paired up with a British family who's opening up their homes to them. And they're like, well, I'll move into the UK soon. I better learn some English. So, um, so I started daily English classes and I had up to 20 students at one point and we would just come and talk to each other, teach them the basics and, and we ended up having a good time. I mean, when you're with right. people that for that much time and, and talking about anything that they want to talk about, you get to know one another. So these students of mine became my friends and it was and really, so what, so what age, what, what was the age group of the students you were teaching? They were every from teenagers, like 14, 15, 16 years old, all the way up into forties. Uh-huh. So a lot of it were mothers with their kids come in. 
Wow. Yeah. And you were there how long? I was there for two weeks. Two weeks. So how much progress were you able to make with folks in two weeks? <laughs> well, I mean, I was cranking out these lessons in my downtime. Um, you know, they took took copious notes. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, and, and again, thankfully, most most Ukrainians have some sort of foundation in English, right. so it wasn't brand new for them. Um, but if anything, I armed them with some new vocabulary words and 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 hope made them a bit more comfortable trying to communicate with their new host families. Right. And what what city were you in? I was in Lublin. Poland, okay. which is kind of the southeastern end. It's about two hours from the Ukrainian border. Okay. So how did you get there? What was that like? Just, just getting down down there? Yeah. So the, the Jewish Federation, they invited me to come, gave me an assignment. So I flew myself to Warsaw, mm-hmm. spent the night there. And the next morning met up with my, I guess, volunteer supervisor, Ala. And she had a car waiting and they drove me out to Lublin. I lived in a hotel, which is a former uh, yeshiva, rabbinical institute, and has a lot of significance for the Jewish community of Poland. It's now been converted into a hotel, but kind of interestingly enough, also has a synagogue in it and, and a museum. And so um, the focus of the Jewish Federation was to help everybody, first and foremost. But if they could identify any Jewish Ukrainians, they would invite them to come there as well and and work with them on either doing the, the Aliyah to move to Israel if they wanted to or or elsewhere in Europe. Um, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting place. It not only was it hosting, um, you know, 40 to 50 Ukrainian families, but it also the time I was there was also Passover. So we had one of the you know, rabbis from here in Los Angeles come to, <laughs> to join us and, and host Passover Seder for everybody and, and whatnot, which was actually cool because, um, I mean, those are fun anyway. But a lot of these Ukrainian people uh, have never had a Seder before because some of the non-Jewish ones were invited to attend. And, and it just be, created like a nice dinner party, which I think, you know, for that moment of time, those few hours makes everyone feel normal. Right. Wow. So, and, and the citizens of Lublin, what, how are they? I mean, this is a big change in their lives and, and they're not that far away, right? Right. Potential warfare. So what was that mood like? They, um, you know, obviously Lublin and I think Poland in general, because I saw a lot of this in Warsaw are very welcoming. Um, you know, the, the main government buildings or historical sites in Lublin were all illuminated in blue and yellow every night. There's the Ukrainian and Polish flags paired together on most of the lampposts and, and, and buildings. Um, you can now hear Russian or Ukrainian on most Polish streets, the kind of the promenades mm-hmm. and thoroughfares, which I don't think was as common before. Um, you know, it's, it's an adjustment, I'm sure, but, but the Polish people, I didn't hear anyone complain about it. Um, you know, I think they just, they, Polish has, Poland has had a history where they've had to deal with this sort of thing before, so they kind (laughs) of know what it's about and, and they're doing their best to, to ease, ease the pain and suffering of their next door neighbor. So you've been back a couple of weeks or so. Mm -hmm. If you reflect on that, you know, what can we as concerned Americans do to help the situation? Uh, I mean, if if you speak the language, Russian or Ukrainian, translation is always needed. Um, I understand that even at our southern border with Mexico, there's a lot of Ukrainians coming over to seek asylum and going through that process. Um, And there's some uh, aid organizations that are looking for Russian speakers to just join their list of uh, available people to, to be on call if they were to get a call 
from somebody at the border that needs help translating with somebody who just arrived. So that's that's one way um, you can do that just from your cell phone. Another way would be donate. And I know we hear that all the time and we see that. But you know what? Um, with the aid organization, the Jewish Federation that I went with, I also met other organizations. I got to see where the money is spent. And, you know, when you sit at home and watch this on TV or read about it online, it's like, oh, you know, I give my money, but, you know, where does that really go? Well, I got to see where it went. You know, so the Jewish Federation is housing 40 to 50 uh, families a night in a hotel. So clearly they're paying for room and board, um, you know, and, and other necessities. Other organizations were there to help with the kids. They brought games and toys and, 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 and educational games as well to, to hang out with the kids all day. So that costs money. So yeah. It, that was probably the most eye-opening thing is like, this is where it goes. And and so if I were to ever donate in the future, I'm be much more comfortable doing so because of that. Right. Um, have you maintained, maintained any contact with the fo- folks there? Yeah. Um, so with some of my stars pupils, um, we, we swapped uh, <laughs> Facebook um, profiles and whatnot. And, and I just saw Sveta and her daughter Vika and son Alexei were at the airport in Warsaw going to the United Kingdom to meet up with their new host family. Oh, wow. And so that, that was really gratifying to see, um, get a little choked up thinking about it because these this family, this woman and her two two children, weren't living in the hotel. They were living in one of the gymnasiums uh-huh. in the rows of cots. Again, mm-hmm. clean and safe, n- not in harm's way, but not private, um, right. not quiet, not the way you'd want to live for very long. And I mm-hmm. think she stayed there with her kids for about a month. But now, you know, they were on the list, and you know, government moves slowly, but they were able to process them in a month and and get them there. Fantastic. You know, it's it's funny. I, I I my my dad was shot down in Vietnam when I was six, and uh, we didn't know he was alive for two years. And then he spent, you know, it was ultimately five years before he came home as a prisoner of war. And so, wow. you know, I was in, you know, a situation where you know my my mom my mom's whole life was suddenly turned upside down. She had three kids, and uh, you know, there is um. You know, there were people along the way that helped us with that. We obviously were never in harm's way ourselves, et cetera. But it's uh, your whole world is turned upside down mm-hmm. overnight. And you don't know if your spouse or father or mother, whoever is coming back. And uh, I can't overstate the impact of what uh, outsider's help can do in a situation like that. So. Congratulations to you, Thank and you, I hope yeah. you've inspired other people to help, whether it's Ukrainian refugees or whoever the next crisis. Mm-hmm. If nothing else, this podcast, I hope we inspire someone else right. to give their time or, or money Definitely. to it's help out. It's very rewarding, and, and every little bit helps. Well, we will be hearing more from Alvin Gillich over time because he is so involved in so many things, but I wanted to thank you very much for coming in today and sharing your story. My and pleasure. Uh, Again, thanks for everything you do for Santa Monicans and Ukrainians and everyone in between. <laughs> Thank you so much, Todd. It's great right. to be here. Take care. Thanks for listening to Inside the Daily Press. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts or listen on our website at smdp.com pod. Music for Inside the Daily Press is provided by The Brig Band, LA's premier jam band. To find out when and where you can hear them live, visit thebrigband.com.